Every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown, a series of inspirational conversations with renowned culinary leaders. Discover how their cultural identity shapes their creative process with your host, Emmanuel. Welcome back to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast, everyone. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the U.S., and every other week, I have genuine conversations with acclaimed chefs, pastry chefs, and mixologists from around the country. And today is not just any other episode. It is the number 150. Yes, that's a big one, folks. Not just because it's a round number, but because we have hit 100,000 downloads as well. That's right. We are in the six-figures territory, and it's all thanks to you. And on top of that, it syncs with the one-year anniversary of my first book, Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. If you are new to this podcast, this is the perfect episode to give you a taste of my conversations with Chef. If you already listened to Flavors Unknown, you probably have missed a few. And after the listen, you might want to come back to the original episodes to hear more from one or two chefs. Obviously, I had to make choices among all my guests and among topics. For this episode 150, I wanted to focus on some of the big themes like heritage and influences, childhood memories, sources of inspiration, techniques in cooking, passion for cooking, lessons learned in their career, leadership and mentorship, and simplicity and collaboration in cooking. So pull up a chair Pour yourself a glass of something delightful and join me as we go back in time and relish some of the voices, stories, and of course, flavors that have made this journey so unforgettable. I decided to go back in time where I left off in my book. So it's a best of, if you will, but from episode number 80-ish and after. Now let's get into the mix by talking about heritage. You know, chefs often talk about their roots and what got their passion started. Take Chef Kelly English, for instance, based in Memphis. He said living New Orleans made him realize how special food there was. Think about that. You know, New Orleans is such a, a unique and, and special food town. It's easy when you're growing up in a place like that to kind of take it for granted. And so when I was growing up, we, we ate a lot of family meals. We ate at my grandparents' house a lot. And it was really leaving New Orleans that made me realize how special food was and, and how, how unique, you know, the place that I grew up was and, and the things that, that I knew what they tasted like or were kind of like the backbone of the way that we eat. I, I went to college at, in, in Mississippi at, at Ole Miss. And uh, it was getting there that I, I realized, like, man, I miss some of these things. And then I moved to Spain for a semester in college. And there were a lot of common threads that I saw in, the, in Barcelona over there that reminded me of New Orleans and kind of sparked a, a, new, a new thing in me that made me want to do this for a living. So it was kind of the, those very different approaches, but, but also very similar connections in the way that they treat food and, and the reverence that they pay to it that, that made me see all okay. that. For Chef Kelly English, it was when stepping away from the vibrant streets of New Orleans that he became nostalgic from its food. 
When I talked to Chef Michael Diaz from Denver, it wasn't the jazz-infused air of New Orleans, but perhaps the vibrant colors and flavors of Mexico that he took for granted, only to realize their value as he ventured far from them. I did not want to have anything to do with Mexican food when I started cooking. I, I, I thought I knew everything about it. I thought, I grew up with this. Why would I cook the same thing that I grew up eating? You know, I wanted to be one of the first cuisines that I started cooking was Southern food. One of the first restaurants I, I was, I was a line cook and a dishwasher at. I, I, uh, it was a dish, it was a Southern food restaurant. So fried chicken and collard greens and pulled pork and all those things are what really attracted me to the kitchen at that time. And it wasn't until later that I really started to embrace my heritage. Both chefs, English and Diaz, through their journeys away from home, found a mirror reflecting the richness of their origins, leading to an awakening of appreciation. As Chef Diaz warmly embraces his Mexican heritage, waving it into the tapestry of his dishes, we turn our gaze to the southern charm of Chef Jeff McInnes from Miami. When I was young, I was in Charleston. I remember there was a chef that I was working for. He's passed away now. His name was Phil Kaur. And he was a New Yorker, but he had lived in Charleston for a long time. And he had fallen in love with Southern food. And, you know, I guess I had not, I had not understood that Southern food was respected. I guess I didn't think Southern food was cool because I grew up with it. And my parents cooked it. And my grandma cooked it. And it can't be cool if grandma's cooking it, you know, like I was, I was young and stupid. And so, you know, at that point, I remember him explaining to me and like, look, this is a French technique, but it's very Southern. This is, you know, this is Creole, but it's, it's, it's very European. This is, you know, Spanish, but it blends in with, so, you know, I started learning through, through going to culinary school and working for this guy at the same time that Southern food was awesome. And going to school in, in, in Charleston, South Carolina, which is, you know, the southern mecca of, of, of food right now. The food scene there is, over the past 10 years, is just explosive. So, yeah, that period of my life was extremely influential. And I realized that, you know, I guess you, you said the word roots earlier. I realized that the roots of where I was from and were actually very valuable. And, and the food that I grew up with, you know, the fried chicken, the fish, you know, all, all that stuff was cool and hip. Jeff's story isn't just about the return to roots. It's a tale of rediscovery and pride. The fried chicken, the fish fries, once mundane fixtures of his thousand and bringing, now stand as pillars of culinary innovation on his menu. What was once familiar and perhaps overlooked has become the cornerstone of his gastronomic identity, celebrated and revered. As we turn our attention from the chefs who have journeyed back to their roots, we are reminded that for some, like Chef Sheldon Simeon from Maui, the roots have never been lost. The aloha spirits, a reverence from the land, a love for community, is not just a concept but a living legacy in Hawaii. Chef Simeon's dedication to showcasing the food of his grandparents is a testament to the power of heritage that is cherished and celebrated continuously rather than rediscovered. Yeah, man, the Aloha spirit comes from the people, uh, comes directly from the lineage of the Hawaiians who 
aloha this land. So they love these islands and they, so much that they respected it. And their, their idea of loving the land, taking care of it, and it will take care of you. That is the basis of all, all things in Hawaii is respect the land, respect your community, respect your neighbor, respect each other. And in turn, you know, Malama, you know, take care, take care of you back. So that's, that's the Aloha spirit. And Aloha goes both ways. That's the thing, right? It's in order to receive Aloha, you got to give Aloha. So this contrast raises a curious question. Is this enduring connection to heritage uniquely strong among islanders due to their geographical and cultural insularity? Is it possible that the very waters that surround them also serve to encapsulate and protect their cultural legacy? Could this unbroken lineage seen in island chefs be a universal trade across other island communities worldwide? As we go through the kitchens of these culinary artists, it becomes evident that the roots of their passion often intertwine with the most cherished moment of their past, heritage and childhood, two sides of the same coin, each imprinting indelible flavors and memories that shape a chef's culinary journey. As we delve deeper into the origins of these flavors, let's shift our focus from the broader topic of heritage to more intimate space of childhood memories. It's in these early years where the seeds of their passion started, nurtured by family traditions and unforgettable sensory moments. Every chef has that Proustian moment where a taste or a smell rockets them back to childhood. Chef Michael Galina from St. Louis took us back to his family's table. I mean, I think lots of grilling, lots of family dinners, you know, around the table at Christmas and Thanksgiving, a lot of that. Okay. So what kind of food was at, you know, family dinners? Well, you know, I think that's the funny thing about my story is like, my family wasn't a huge group of cooks. So, I mean, my dad used to like to barbecue, grill chicken, different various things. But besides that, I think that's why I kind of got pushed into kind of cooking myself and kind of creating dinners and kind of, you know, looking at things to do. So what made you, you know, become interested into, uh, into food if it was not part of your family culture? I mean, I think that, you know, when I was first growing up, my grandfather was you know, just kind of all over the place with taking myself and my brother and my cousins and trying to like create sparks of interest with us and taking us to, to different restaurants. And, you know, I think he was that kind of a, a, at home cook, wasn't, you know, necessarily the best cook, but enjoyed entertaining and having, you know, the whole family kind of get around a table. And, you know, he was kind of known for making Yorkshire pudding. So I guess if I really kind of think back to my first one, of my first memories of, of cooking with him, it would be Yorkshire pudding and you know, I think of thinking of the smells that came from that was actually, you know, smoke, you know, seeing smoke, hearing the fire detector, you know, almost every single time. But, you know, it, it I think kind of interests me so much because I'd see him every single year. The same same thing happened. But, you know, he was still every year go back and make it again. And somehow it would always still come out delicious, whether, you know, we smoked out the in ho entire house or, you know, had the fire department show up. So I think that was kind of the first thing of like, you know, what's this guy doing? Seeing the drive behind him trying to, to you know, push himself to, even though he was struggling to, to still, you know, push hard to make it, to make something delicious. 
and Chef Leah Gaccione from Morristown, New Jersey, painted a picture of her early culinary exposure with cooking shows and her mother's resilience and creativity in the kitchen. Growing up, I always really loved watching cooking shows. And my mom was a single mom, but she would cook for us. So we, we were never bored with food. We did have somewhat humble beginnings because my mom was a single mom. And so like, you know, we used to eat a lot of canned vegetables. She always gave us broccoli or asparagus and artichokes. My neighbor up the street had a nice garden in her backyard. So there was always fresh veggies from there. But watching cooking shows is really what started my love affair with food. And I was always very enamored with watching people cook on television. I remember watching Yan Can cook and watching him like blow through an onion with a knife so fast. And I was like, I want to be able to do that one day. That's kind of where it started. From the grills of St. Louis to the kitchens of Morristown, we now venture into the heartwarming tales of chefs Tavel Bristol-Joseph in Austin, Nando Chang in Miami, Mani Chouan in Nashville, Michael Diaz in Denver, and Will Funk in D.C. Their stories intertwine the sensory memories of childhood with the deep-rooted flavors of their family heritage. When I asked them about what food and what smell reminding them of their childhood, this is what they said. First, let's hear from Chef Bristol Joseph and Guyana. If I close my eyes and think about my childhood and think about the food and the flavors, I'm thinking fine leaf thyme. I'm thinking mangoes. I'm thinking coconut milk. I'm thinking butter because I'm thinking roti, right? Mm -hmm. So not even butter we use. We use lard. Roti, you said. Yeah, roti. Um, Okay. I'm thinking uh, cook up rice. It's kind of like our version of fried rice where you put uh, all these different types of meat, coconut milk, rice, herbs, and spices in a pot and boil it. And then when the rice is cooked, everything is in there. One one bowl, that's all you need. Okay. One pot and one bowl. <laughs> so I'm thinking about all those like just amazing tropical flavors, yeah. man. I'm hearing waterfalls. Um, all of those things, that's, that reminds me of my childhood. And now Chef Chang and Peru. A lot of fish, a lot of shellfish, lots of lime, chilies. You could always smell chili. Cilantro. I smelled a lot of cilantro growing up. Chilies, lime. It just smells like a, when you walk into a, a ceviche bar. You, just, you okay. just know it. It just smells a certain way. And then, I don't know why, but I always think of pork fat. You know, I think maybe because we use manteca so okay. much. There was like a, an arroz con chancho, like a pork rice at the mm-hmm. house. That smell just makes me feel very nostalgic. Let's hear from Chef Manit Chouan in India. The smell that reminds me of childhood has nothing to do with food, but everything to do with food. I'm intrigued now. Yeah, it is the smell of the first rainfall on parched, dry land, that smell. Okay. Every time, I mean, the summers in India used to be blistering, really hot. So when the first mm-hmm. rainfall used to fall, it used to be, to me, in my mind, I would have that, oh, it's raining, means I'm going to get the sweetest mangoes coming into the market 
and lychee season is in town so to me that was the most amazing part about like that smell reminds me of like fresh seasonal fruits uh, and yeah that reminds me of childhood what about chef diaz and mexico my mom and all of my aunts and my grandmother they're they're all phenomenal cooks so growing up in a, you know a mexican household the smells of the kitchen were very prominent diaz fresh tortillas and you know the in the morning the the bacon and the potatoes and the and the the salsa roasting on a on a cast iron you know the very simple jalapeno tomato onion salsa that they would make for breakfast but you can smell it on the cast iron and and hear it so just the things like that and finally from chef will fang in hong kong the the most memorable smell is is probably the the daily routine both my parents were were working a lot so you know after school i would get off of school around like four or five o'clock my mom would give me a a list of uh, grocery items to buy from the local market that day so you know just the smells of of the, the local market where you get your chicken you know produce you get that fresh every day we don't really have like big refrigerators it's just you buy stuff for dinner that night and then you do it again the next day so kind of the sights and smells of what is kind of ingrained in me <laughs> and uh, do you have as well a smell of uh, smell of, of uh, like food of uh, anything like cooking at home at home growing up yeah we, we mostly cooked at home so a lot of like steam steam fish i think that's, that's usually like you do a lot of steam fish steam whole fish and we put kind of like ginger scallion on top of the fish and we put like blistering hot oil on top so that smell that aroma of the the ginger and scallion over the hot oil is, is always a very iconic smell for me <laughs> we have been on quite the journey today haven't we this is one of the reasons i love experimenting these different restaurants around the country it makes me travel and escape into this chef's memory lanes from backyard barbecues to watching cooking shows with family to salsa roasting in a cast iron in Mexico, and the first rainfall on parched dry land in India. These stories from our chefs are like a time machine, taking us back to their first steps in the culinary world. Now let's pivot a bit. Think about it. What gets a chef's creative juices really flowing? Is it the change of seasons? a bursting farmer's market, or maybe it's a childhood dish that gets a new twist. That's what we are diving into next, the sparks that light the fire in the kitchens. Let's see what's cooking in their minds of these culinary withers when they are dreaming up their next big dish. So our concept here is seasonal American. I love that concept because I think America has so many different influences and so many different cultures. And while the dishes may not be super authentic to whatever we're pulling inspiration from, those flavors are present. My muse to create the menu is always what's in season. So like yesterday, I worked on making all my mise en place lists for my winter menu change. So what is winter? Winter is cara cara oranges and blood oranges and dark leafy greens and parsnips and root veggies. I mean, Winter's not as exciting as summer, let's be honest, (laughs) especially in New Jersey. (laughs) But that's really what the basis is, is working with what's in season to create kind of interesting 
but familiar dishes that people want to come here and eat more than once a week. Like, so can we take an example from maybe a dish that you are going to put in, in, in the yeah. menu in the winter? Uh, yes. I know, sorry, I put you on the spot. Yeah, but. no, let me, I'm going, I'm ruffling through all the uh, dishes. So I want to put on a, a citrus and pomegranate salad with feta cheese and crispy quinoa and baby mustard greens. This is the one with the caracara orange? Yeah, no, there'll be caracara yeah. orange, maybe some grapefruit in there, local feta cheese from Harvest Drop, pomegranate seeds. I think that I put some hazelnuts in there. I think hazelnuts and citrus go really well together. You know, you have to think about flavors, textures. So like the salad's going to be, in my brain, it sounds so yummy because it's like a little sweet, a little tart, a little salty from the feta, you know, tartness and sweetness from the pomegranate and citrus. Then we're going to put crispy quinoa so in there. You so hit the, gonna... all the tastes. Yeah. So like that's, that's, that's how my brain and works. And what will be the uh, dressing? The dressing is going to be like a pomegranate molasses dressing. So sweet, kind of sweet and tart. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. After hearing Chef Leah Gaccioni talk about the magic of seasonal ingredients, it's clear that inspiration can come from what nature offers us at different times of the year. There's something special about dishes that tells the story of the season. But let's not stop there. Up next, we have got Chef Kelly Whitaker in Denver, Colorado, who finds his treasures in the vibrant and diverse offerings of the farmer's market. When people think of Colorado, they can think of Palisade peaches and cantaloupes and melons. And there's, there's things that I don't think that, you know, those two alone, you can't really get anywhere else. In Boulder, we have a very short growing season. So a lot of that sort of localization, hyper local year round happens a lot on the Western slope. So that's really beautiful place to cook. There's some great restaurants down there that are cooking locally. And so, but yeah, I mean, again, we're, we're sort of challenged right now is the best time to be, you know, a chef here because I was at the Boulder farmer's market this morning and talking to our farmers. And I mean, it's just an explosion. You know, this isn't a year round Santa Monica market, there's always something in play. Right now, the markets are beautiful. And they're everything's a treasure in a way, you know, the plums are incredible. And the tomatoes are extraordinary. I mean, there, there's everything is starting to happen right now. But you know, in a couple of months, we're already thinking as chefs, like, what are we doing in the fall? And that question has plagued me for a decade, but this is, this is the thing that comes up right as soon as you, you peak, you start to you know, go down the other side of the spectrum. From the seasonal wonders of Chef Gaccione's kitchen to the Burtsline Farmer's Markets with Chef Whitaker, inspiration comes in many forms. Now let's travel a bit further with Chef Chris Kajioka in Hawaii, who finds his muse in the rich culture of traditions of Japan. His connection to his heritage deepens with each visit, bringing a unique blend of the old and new to his creations. You know, I think the older I get, the more I'm inspired by Japan. I'm Japanese and, you know, I've, I've been traveling there now off and on for about eight years, pretty religiously. And, you know, that's pretty much where I get my inspiration nowadays. You know, the concept really came, it was kind of a, a continuation of what he had before. You know, he was a Japanese chef, trained in France, and kind of did the whole French-Japanese cuisine. So it was basically a continuation of what he was doing. And just when you think you've got a handle, what inspires these culinary artists? 
There's another layer to explore, the techniques they use in their cooking. It's one thing to be inspired, but it's a whole other ballgame to bring those ideas to life in the kitchen. From traditional methods passed down through generations to innovative approaches that pushes the culinary envelope, let's dive into the world of cooking techniques. As we delve into the world of culinary techniques, it's essential to start with the wisdom of the masters. And who better to guide us than Chef Jacques Pépin? This legend in the kitchen has shaped the way many of us think about cooking. Chef Pépin's approach isn't just about following recipes. It's about understanding the philosophy behind each technique, the why and the how. Let's listen in as he shares his invaluable advice for young chefs, emphasizing the importance of learning from the best and seeing the world of food through diverse lenses. You know, during my time, and certainly the cook, as I say, was, was very low on the social scale. So you never thought of being famous or whatever. So it mm -hmm. was, in a sense, easier. And I would tell now a young chef to try to work with the best possible chef that he can. And, but at that point, when you go somewhere and you work with uh, Thomas Keller, you're not going to tell him what to do. You know? So you just have to say, yes, chef, that's about it. And you have to look at the food through his eye, through his sense of aesthetic, whether it coincides with your taste or your sense of aesthetic is immaterial. You do that for a year or two, a couple of years, and you work with another one that, you know, for a couple of years looking at it through their point of aesthetics, through their, and you do that with a third and fourth one. If you do that for seven, eight years, you have absorbed an enormous amount of point of view, an enormous amount of knowledge too. And now you're going to give it back. And now, of course, you filter it through your sense of aesthetics, through your sense of taste. Now you're doing your own stuff. Because ultimately, you cannot escape yourself. You are who you are. And, you know, I, am, I teach at Boston University for 37 years. So I used to give a class called the ultimate meal, which was a roast chicken, a boiled potato, and a salad. You know, but it has to be done properly, temperature properly, you know, Boston lettuce, properly washed, drained, a bit of the chicken fat with the olive oil, mixing the dressing too, and so forth. Well, I have 12 students, so I would I do a demonstration showing them the whole thing, they test it, and they all go to the stove with the basket, the same ingredient to do it. I used to say, please. Don't try to blow my mind. I know you want to blow my mind and make it different. Make it different than the guy next to you. You don't have to do that. I say, there is 12 people here today. I'm going to have 12 different chickens. Two of them will be overcooked. Two of them undercooked. Two of them are going to be cold. But they will be different. So you don't have to torture yourself to be different. Try to cook more with your guts. Because ultimately, you are different than the person next to you. So you cannot really do it exactly the same way. And that's the beauty for me of a great restaurant. Hearing Chef Jacques Pépin, it's like getting a masterclass in culinary mentorship, isn't it? But let's shift our focus slightly. Chef Matt Conroy from Restaurant Lutèce in DC brings an interesting perspective into the mix. He emphasizes the importance of techniques over creativity. You know, sometimes you can get lost in all the innovation and forgets the basics. It's like building a house no matter how beautiful the design is, if the foundation isn't solid, things are going to wobble. Let's hear what Chef Conroy has to say about the bedrock of cooking, the techniques. That's a good question. That's, uh, it, can go, it can go both ways, but I really think the technique is 
the most important part of it. I've definitely been to restaurants where you see it and there's, yeah, it's very creative, but it's not, it's not enjoyable because they're missing the, you know, the foundation of it. And that's something I'll definitely say there's, you get a lot of cooks now that, you know, they see all this crazy stuff that chefs are doing, but they don't realize that a lot of those chefs techniques, the, the foundation is, is amazing. You know, you could say, make me chicken jus or, or any of that stuff. And that those chefs could, could make a, the best you've ever had probably. And then there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of kids that skip that stage and just want to sous vide and turn things with liquid nitrogen and stuff like that. So I, I really think you need to have the technique of how to, you know, roast a chicken and sear a piece of fish with the crispy skin and, and those, and then you can branch out and start getting creative and, you know, that, but you need to have that, that technique. I, I think that's very important. Now, from the foundations of culinary skills, we move to a bit of a reality check with Chef Manit Chouan. In today's world, where being a celebrity chef is as much a part of the job as wielding a knife, Chef Manit Chouan reminds us of the true essence of this profession. It's not about chasing the limelight or getting on TV. It's about mastering your craft. The kitchen is a place of learning and growing, not just a stage for the cameras. I was good at what I did. That's why I got on TV. Nowadays, I see a lot of people doing things because it's the other way around. They are expecting, why do you want to be a chef? Because I want to be on TV. Mm-hmm. And that is not it. I mean, and, and the thing is that with social media and all, we have fostered a generation of people who want to learn shortcuts in cooking food. And at times it becomes, which is great. It has a place, but it only has a place when you know the foundation. So you need to know your basics to go ahead and start cutting corners for it, right? So at times I do get very worried about that, that uh, I am hoping that, uh, you know, the next generation realizes that the work has to be put in. The foundation has to be built, right? You need to know how to make a really good bechamel sauce, right? It's not, it's, 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 that's not a, not a shortcut, right? Uh, so, so to me, I am hoping that I am wrong and that the next generation would give a lot more stress on basics as opposed to anything else. Following Chef Mani Chouan's take on the importance of techniques of a fame, let's hear from Chef Chris Kajioka in Honolulu, who brings us back to the heart of cooking, the ingredients. You know, there's this saying that a great dish starts with great ingredients, and Chef Kajioka lives by this philosophy. Whether it's the lush produce of San Francisco or the fresh catch of the day, he believes that good technique is essential but it is the quality of the ingredient that truly makes the dish shine. To me, if you don't have a good product, if you don't start with good ingredients, no matter what you do to it, it's not going to work out. That's the way I look at it. And this is me training in San Francisco and New York, where, where you know, the San Francisco, the produce is, is incredible, right? There's not a better, maybe LA probably has just as good, if not better. But, you know, what I was taught by, by Ron Siegel is that, you know, he would go to the market twice a week. If you can't get good product, it doesn't matter what the technique is or it doesn't matter how creative. 
it's not going to be as good. I guess that's how Japanese approach it too, right? Product is everything. And then if you get good product, then you can apply proper technique to it. But I would say technique is comes over creativity for me. After delving deep into the techniques of cooking, let's turn the page to something that's less about the how and more about the why. You know, they say passion is what turns a good chef into a great one. It's that spark, that undeniable love for the craft that makes all the difference. Chef Manichuan sums it up simply and beautifully. To me, food is fun. This joy, this passion for the culinary arts, it's what fuels chef through the long hours and the heat of the kitchen. To me, food is fun, right? When people take out fun or out of food, that upsets me. That's why I am a big, like, you know, I love street food. I, I love, like when people say, who are the chefs that you look up to? I say it is the street vendors because they have limited They have limited resources, right? Everything is fresh because they have no storage, right? And with limited resources, they are making such incredible flavors. They're doing something right. That's why, that's what, why you have then written chat, correct? Exactly, exactly. And that's, to me, uh, my book chat, it was an ode to um, the street vendors of India. And speaking of passion, Chef Suzanne Gouin from Los Angeles brings another layer to this conversation, the love for the kitchen's camaraderie. It's not just about the dishes that come out of the kitchen. It's about the bonds forged and the shared experience of a team working together. Chef Gouin shares her love for the energy and the people that makes every service an adventure. I love cooking. I also love the, I just love the camaraderie. I love, you know, working with people who I like. I like the adrenaline. I love, I still like a crazy Saturday night. I love that, like the rush and everybody working together really hard. And then, you know, sort of surviving in the end, it's like warriors that have, we've made it through to the other side together. I love making customers happy. It's, it's funny that it's still to this day, it's like when somebody tells me they had a great meal or they really loved it, or, you know, we always come back for our birthday or whatever it may be. It's just, it's really rewarding. So From the fiery passion in the kitchen to the unbreakable bonds forged in the heat of service, we have heard how love and camaraderie fuel our chefs. But let's shift gears and talk about the journey of growth and learning. Every chef's path is sprinkled with lessons learned, sometimes in the hard way, from mentors and experience that shape their culinary identity. It's the next segment where we dive into the wisdom gained over the years, the invaluable teachings from those who paved the way. First, we have Chef Chris Kajioka in Hawaii, reflecting on the impact of his mentors, including Chef Ron Siegel, who played a pivotal role in his development. I've always wanted to work for chefs who are very active. My mentor who I worked for after culinary school, Ron Siegel. Ron is a, he's just, he's just a legend, you know? And I don't think a lot of people know, but he was the first, first sous chef of the French Laundry. That was the reason why I went to Per Se. I worked for Ron for about two and a half, three years. And to this day, you know, he's a one-star restaurant called Madcap in Marin, but 
That guy works every service. He he basically taught me, I would say, everything I know. My my success is because of him. And everything you know, sorry, from uh, from a technique standpoint, or from uh, let's say more like a, a management standpoint. What what did you learn from him? You know, I worked at so back then it was the dining room at the Ritz Carlton in San Francisco, and. This is when, you know, it was probably that in the French Laundry was the, were the two, I would say, the best restaurants in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. You know, at that point, we had four stars in the Chronicle. You know, we had every, every accolade. And this was 2005. He was doing the French-Japanese. He's really the guy who opened my eyes to amazing Japanese product. He was doing it first, you know, because he, he was on the original Iron Chef back in the early 2000s, I think. And so he had access to Japan. And so we used, you know, only Japanese soy sauce. We used fresh wasabi. This is 2005. Now, this is like what's so in vogue, right? So, you know, I was I was making, you know, dashis and all these things back in early 2000s. And now that's what everybody makes, you know? So, you know, Ron, Ron is what... He opened my eyes to that that kind of I want to say fusion, but having a very French base, you know, but using local the local produce, but with Japanese, you know, technique and also flavors. And speaking of influential mentors, let's hear from Chef Michael Galina. His experience with Daniel Bouloud not only sharpened his skills but also ignited a deep desire to make a mark in the culinary world. It's the relationships, the moments of learning, and pushing beyond limits that often become the cornerstone of a chef's career. I think the most, I, I just learned structure in a lot of different ways that I'd never seen. I mean, there's one thing to love to cook and enjoy like creating different flavors and things like that, but then to be able to kind of, you know, put it all together and have a little bit more discipline and structure and just see all these different creative ways to do different things. Yeah, I spent, I guess, about a year and a half to two years working with him out in San Francisco. Okay. And then, you know, that's when he was kind of recruited to go take over at 11 Madison Park. And I just built, I felt like a really good relationship with him as well. And I just really, you know, I felt like I learned a lot from him that he just kind of, he pushed what, or he made me push to, to really want to try to make something out of myself with, with cooking. So he all, he offered me a position to come with him to New York and help him, you know, when he took over at 11 Madison Park. So uh, I jumped on that, obviously. I'd never even been to New York before I landed for that job, which was, is a whole nother story. But yeah, I, I definitely see him as someone that really kind of shaped me in a culinary sense of just like, you know, someone that, I'm trying to think of the best word, way to put it, but just, yeah, lots of discipline and structure and and how I kind of look at different dishes and flavors. Let's talk about leadership and mentorship. I look a lot to, if it's like a quick rapid, like where my brain goes to now, Gavin Kaysen at Cafe Balud, who is in Minnesota now, was probably one of the biggest pushers that I've ever had in, in all of my kitchens because he was a relatable human being. He was already coming to us from his Bocusto or from his working in, in Europe and very smart, very sharp, very savvy, not 
a typical chef that I had seen at that point. You know, I was, I think, 27, 26 or 27 in New York. And the way he spoke to us, the way he handled himself in the kitchen, the way he handled every scenario in the kitchen was inspiring. But also to sit down with him one-on-one was something that was, I just did not get that anywhere else, you know, every day consistently with any other chef. But, you know, I've had great ones in San Antonio as well. But Gavin is really the one that made a team out of kind of nothing at that moment in time. We were going through a switch from a, a French chef into an American chef. And that was difficult. But even to this day, the way he talks to his team or his former chefs, it's, it's almost all love. From Chef Rick Lopez, reflections on the inspiring leadership of Chef Gavin Kaysen, with whom, by the way, I just recording a fantastic episode that will be aired in January. In fact, so we move to another aspect of leadership in the culinary world now. I talk with Chef Tavel Bristol-Joseph in Austin, who brings a unique perspective on leading from within. It's not just about being at the top. It's about lifting others up creating a space where every voice matters. This inclusive approach to leadership not only fosters a positive environment, but also paves the way for innovation and growth. I would define it as from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is I feel like most times or when when I was in positions, when I was coming up, leadership to me was this person in the front or this person in the top. That's how it was viewed. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was intentional or what, but in the New York culture, that I would say that's how it is. It's like, I'm on top, you're in the bottom. Mm -hmm. I run this show, you do what I told you, tell you to do. That's kind of like how it felt all my life, I feel like, right? Even with how family members would treat you, it's, do what I say. Don't ask no questions. And I've always had a problem with that, but I've never, I never could voice it. Right. But I've always seen that system as just, it's just not balanced. Um, so how I wanted to create it is we're going to do the hard work to build a foundation, but we, we have new people and new breeds and new ideas coming in our doors every day. And not saying all those ideas are great. But what I'm saying is that some of those ideas are the ones that will change the world and change the way how we view the world. So we want to be able to create a space in which, like, for example, Kanji is going to be built. The foundation is set. We have, we have worked hard to build a name, a representation in the community. We've done all of those hard work based from starting from Emmer and Rye to here. We've built a trust and a loyal following of people. Every chef that comes into this space, now your goal is to now build upon the foundation that is set. You don't have to create a new culture. It's there already. Come with ideas that is going to help us to get to the next level, the level that I couldn't reach or I can't reach in my lifetime. Let's talk about those things. So our mission and goal is always to have this voice for the younger generation, I would say, or for the, I shouldn't say younger because not everyone is younger, but the ones that will take us to the next level. Let's stay on the theme of effective leadership with Chef Bristol Joseph for a minute. He emphasizes the importance of listening 
and understanding. It's about meeting your team where they are, understanding their perspective and guiding them accordingly. This empathetic approach to leadership is crucial in the high-stress environment of a professional kitchen where clear communication and mutual respect can make all the difference. Lastly, let's tune in to Chef Suzanne Nguyen in Los Angeles, who shares the gratifying aspect of mentorship in the culinary world. The journey of a chef isn't just about personal achievements. It's about the joy of nurturing talent, watching someone you've mentored grow and succeed. Chef Gouin captures this beautiful highlighting the rewarding feeling that comes from helping others rise in their careers. It's a reminder that in a world of cooking, success is not just measured in dishes serves, but also in their lives positively impacted. It's funny, actually, that you bring up the mentoring because I would say that's the other one. You asked me a little bit back about what brings me joy. I would say that's definitely another part of the job that brings me joy. There's a lot of, th- there's a lot of frustrations in the business, but I think when you feel like there's somebody who you've helped to develop and rise up and figure things out, that's a really rewarding feeling. What else am I telling them besides Yeah, like cook? beside the skills, yeah. like, you know, yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yes. Well, like... Which is an important part. It's a very important part. No, but I, I, yes. I would say that the the how you manage people and communication are also like equally important because you have to, and I think the leadership is, it's really a balance of sort of tough love and just being empathetic, but also being tough, which is a kind of hard thing for people to, it's a hard balance to strike sometimes. I feel like, you know, if I'm working with a pantry cook and if they keep making the same mistake over and over again, like for me, I'm, I mean, I'll, I will, I'll teach somebody till I'm blue in the face. And there's a certain point where like, if they're not getting it, it's hard to not get frustrated. Right. So it's, it's finding that way to kind of motivate people to teach them, but also kind of not let them, it doesn't mean it's a free for all just because you're nice, you know? So it's, it's because that's not good for them either. I, you know, it's, it's a little bit like with kids, like they, like people want discipline and structure. They want to know what they're supposed to be doing and, Actually, it's funny. We had a, we have a new newish cook at Brentwood. I was working there the other night and he's very super eager kid. He's really into it. He's always jumping over to the next station to learn something. And I went over to the station. It was like a mess. There's like stuff everywhere. He wasn't busy. It was like at the end when things were slowing down, it was like, Hey, you know what? Like you did a really great job tonight and you got the food out and I appreciate you jumping around, but like, look at your station. You know, you have to like, you, you have to not want to work like this. You know, and I mean, the good thing was he, you know, he took it, he was a little embarrassed, but he took it really well. And then the next day when I went back, it was like, he had everything organized. So you have to be kind of nagging and you have to hound people a little bit. But then for me, it's always, that's a great thing about building a good crew is like, which I've been lucky to do so far is like, once you, once you have a group of people who are all like-minded, it's much more easier when a new person comes in, you kind of get that person into the, we're all sort of training them into what the expectations are and how we work together because we work very much like a team. It's not like, this is my station. It's, it's, if, you're, if your station's not busy and the person next to you is busy, we're kind of all hands on deck. And once you have that culture, it's very it's much easier to teach that culture to the person, the new person coming in. From the inspiring stories of leadership and mentorship, we now turn to a different kind of artistry in the kitchen, the art of simplicity and collaboration. It's about finding the balance between doing things right and keeping them straightforward and how chefs work together to create something truly special. 
Kicking off this segment, we have the legendary chef Jacques Pépin, who has always emphasized the beauty of simplicity in cooking. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't really try to be creative in the sense, you know, it's a process which it's a process of simplicity very often more now. And I do think I say, why do we do that? I remember having those arguments with Julia Child when we our show together. She always said we started cooking together because I was in apprenticeship in 1949 and she came to France in 1949 and stayed there for two, three years. She was 23 years older than me. But at that time, she, she, we started together, she said. So, yeah, there was a certain style and all that of the time. So when I cook with her, for example, I remember we didn't have any, we didn't have any recipe when we cooked together. We did those shows. We decided, let's do stew tomorrow or whatever. So it was probably more difficult for, for the cameraman and so forth. They didn't know where, where, mm-hmm. where we were going to be, but, sure. but we had no recipe. So I cook spinach. So, you know, I grab spinach, I just wash the spinach, they're still wet. I put them in a, in a skillet, cover them, say, no, 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 we got to blanch. So in the old style, yes, when I work at the Plaza Tennis Paris, we drop the spinach in boiling water, salted water, and uh, in copper things, and boil them three, four minutes, drain them, cool them, press them into bowl, and we had those bowls of cooked spinach ready to be sauteed or one thing or another. Mm-hmm. I don't do that anymore. Now, she was still doing this, and so we argue about that all style and in a sense we got many letters saying she was so much more French than I was because because <laughs> uh, this was the old That's style. So funny. That's a yeah. funny story. I did, I never heard about that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting because already at that time, you know, you're talking and describing the evolution of the techniques, you know, that between like, you know, what she knew from blanching, you know, the spinach and then, you know, your experience so now if we fast forward, you know, all those years, we have seen so many as well changes, you know, in terms of techniques in, in, in the cuisine, correct? Yes. So there's a lot of things that, you know, there's still, you know, some reference to the classic, you know, French techniques, but there's so many other things that have been modernized or even coming from different, you know, countries okay. that are changing I mean, you know, the world of cuisine. 24,000 restaurants in New York, so the amount of ethnicity we have here is unmatched anywhere in the world. So, you know, if you keep your mind open, I mean, I just did that book on chicken. The point is that I could probably do a book of 10,000 recipes of chicken from West Africa to Turkey, from, you know, Italy to, to Russia. So, you know, so if you keep your mind open, when you work with anyone you work with, you always learn something. You know. Chef Pepin's emphasis on simplicity leads us to this next profound insight. He talks about how recipes from our childhood, regardless of where they are from, carry an emotional weight that transcends the mere act of eating. These dishes represent home, love, security, feelings that are universal. Whether you come from, you know, from Turkey or from West Africa, have become very visceral, very essential. You know? I mean, they transcend the level, the level of the the physiological function of food, it's more than that. It's home, it's family, it's love, it's security, you know. And that's what those kids, when you are at war in Africa, to they dream at night of those dishes, which, as I say, transcend that level. It's more getting home. So, yes, if I taste the, the dishes of the poulet à la crème that my mother used to do, I would say that my mother poulet à la crème. It was a, a, a task. Especially that in my training of cooking, 
there was never any recipe in apprenticeship. And even when I work at the Plaza Attendee place in France, no, we did things according to, to, according to the rule of the house. So it was a question of, it wasn't a question of creating. There was no creation at the time, way before Nouvelle Cuisine. It was just conforming. And the Plaza Athènes in Paris was very well known for the lobster souffle, which they still do, I believe. Well, we were 48 chefs in the kitchen. 48 of us could have done it. You would never have known who had done it. You know, that was the way. So if I have the chicken of my mother or the lobster souffle of the Plaza Athènes or the striped bass of the pavilion in New York, I would say that the striped bass of the pavilion. You know, there is those things which remain with you like this, which are a bit essential. Echoing the sentiment of simplicity and emotional connection, Chef Joe Sasto brings us to the idea that the state of mind while cooking can influence the final dish. It's about the emotion, the passion behind the preparation. If the chef is happy and relaxed, it's likely that the food will reflect that positivity. You know, I'm a firm believer that if someone is happy when they're cooking, the food's going to taste better versus if someone is scared or stressed or whatever it is as they're cooking, the food's going to not be as good. And I think that that could, I mean, that could maybe fall over into anything that, yeah. you know, bring, we, bring love into the cooking. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. And so we were all having a really great time and it, it translated into the food. Building on the theme of emotion in cooking, chef Nathaniel Zimet in New Orleans talks about the importance of getting back to basics. It's not always about reinventing the wheel. Sometimes it's about perfecting what's already there. Doing things the right way, with care and attention to detail, can make a dish truly stand out. I really try to spend a lot of time focusing on doing the right thing and, and getting back to the basics. I'm not trying to recreate something, I'm just trying to do it properly. And I think things that are done properly tend to shine a lot more than people. What you are the most proud of when you look at Bushri? Food-wise? Mm-hmm. Consistency. Honestly, I, I'm most proud of the fact that, that I think you go to the restaurant and, and for the most part, we're going to have, you know, I've standardized all of my recipes to the grams. You know, this is something that, that I feel is so crucial in a restaurant and the success of a restaurant is consistency. So what I'm most proud about, I think, is that regardless of the day, the food should be the same. Speaking of doing things right, Chef Kelly English in Memphis introduces another crucial aspect, collaboration. He believes that the future of cooking is less about individualism and more about working together, valuing the input of each team member. This approach not only brings diverse perspectives to the table, but also fosters a sense of community in the kitchen. I think that the future is collaborative. I think that the future is is less precious than the past has been. I think that we've got to figure out a way to approach our business in a way that we're we are not as an industry devastated in two days. Like two days is all it took to really devastate our industry, and we've we've got to figure out a way around that. I think that that's going to take some education, both internally and to our guests. I think that. We have to kind of define what our relationship is and how it works. And, you know, I think that that we've got to look at our businesses like real businesses uh, moving forward. And we, we have to make good decisions, both in the short and the long term. And I, I think that that for years, I, just thinking about the way we've done things is, you know, if we had something that we wanted to put on the menu, but we couldn't really 
charge the right amount for where we were. We would just put it on because we want, we can't do that anymore. When we do that, we jeopardize the ability for everyone on our team to earn a living, for everyone on our team to take care of their families. And I'll, I'll never put my team in that position again. Continuing with the theme of collaboration, Chef Michael Galina in San Luis shared his source of inspiration, conversations, and teamwork. For him, the creative process is parked with discussing possibilities and working together to explore what can be achieved with available ingredients. This collaborative spirit is at the heart of his culinary philosophy. I mean, I think my biggest inspiration is my staff. I mean, I think that we try to sit down and just bad ideas off of each other and talk, you know, we start all the different restaurants. We have meetings every day with everybody where we just sit down and we talk through the menu and, and really try to like, you know, myself and my partner, Aaron, who's our culinary director and my wife. And, you know, I think we all think collaboration is the best way to be successful, you know, because one or two minds can only come up with so much when you're trying to, to push and be creative and a little bit different. So I think my biggest inspiration comes from, just sitting down and talking to people and, you know, discussing what's available and what we can do with it. And, you know, I, waste is a big inspiration for me. Like, what can we do with, why is that going to the garbage? What can we do with it? Can we make kimchi with it? Can we make a tea? Can we make a spritzer? You know, if those herbs in the garden are overgrown, what else can we do with them? You know, so I think, you know, those kind of things inspire me. As we wrap up our journey through the realms of simplicity and collaboration, we've led to a cornerstone of modern culinary philosophy, the use of local and seasonal ingredients. It's fascinating to see how chefs integrate the community's produce into their menu, creating dishes that not only taste incredible, but also tell a story of the land and its people. Let's start with Chef Michael Galina in San Luis, who deeply immerses himself in the local scene to bring the freshest ingredient to his kitchen. Yeah, I mean, our, our philosophy is to kind of in, immerse ourselves in the local community, try to use as, as much local product as we can. I mean, for the first year that Tara and I moved here, Tara's my wife, we, we did pop-ups in St. Louis. But then we also, um, we just went and visited all these different people. So, you know, the people that we get our milk from now, we drove two hours and, and met them and then sat down with their family and talked. And same with a lot of the different farms that we look, we, we use now. We just... We tried to build relationships. So, you know, that's something that's very, very important to us is supporting our local community and our farmers and artisans and, you know, different people doing some really special things here. You know, the food that we cook, we just kind of stick true to our roots of, again, what I was saying earlier about Stone Barns and Blue Hill is like, you didn't always order it. You didn't always order anything. It was really just like, what did the farmers drop off? And let's, you know, be collaborative and put our minds together. And what can we create with that? So, you know, at, at Vistia, we don't have a menu. You come in, we ask you if you have any dietary restrictions or, you know, any allergies or restrictions, and then we, we handwrite a menu for you. It's similar to kind of what we did at Stone Barns, but on a, a smaller, you know, Stone Barns was, you know, a five-hour experience and, you know, 30, you know, courses. We do it in a smaller format that we call our Farmer's Feast, but it still allows us to just utilize product in a unique and different way. You know, sometimes all the cart menus, you know, you're having to order just too much of something, not knowing if it'll sell or not, but you have to have it on the menu. Whereas we try to just utilize the things that we can get from, from different people. And if the menu changes, you know, 
two times a week than it does. It changes every two or three weeks, and that's when it happens, depending on what we what's available and okay. what we can get. Chef Galina's philosophy about embracing the local community sets the stage for Chef Kelly's English insights. It's not just about what is in season. It's about how these ingredients inspire and shape the menu. Let's hear how the rhythm of nature and local produce serves as a muse for Chef English's culinary creations. Creativity and productivity are not friends. It's very difficult to be creative and productive at the same time. I liken it to trying to a guitarist to, to think about a new song that he's going to write or she's going to write while they're playing a different song. You like your brain just goes fried. So this past year, all chefs and anyone that's continued to work in restaurants has had to be crazy productive. So when it comes to creativity, that's been, that's been a real challenge this past year. You know, my creative process, I really, I really start with, I think about different ingredients that I want to use, whether it be a vinegar or whether it be a piece of meat or whether it be a vegetable, whatever it is. And I like to build around those things. I like to, to, to test things incrementally from raw all the way to burnt sometimes to see where I want something to land. I, I also, when I'm, when I'm going through my creative process, I like to keep in mind how we're going to accomplish something through service. So it's easy to create this monstrosity of something that's very impressive that you can't, that you can't recreate or get out of the yeah, kitchen. Yeah. So I always want to keep those things in mind. But I also like to take input from members of my team as well. So everyone has a different story. Everyone has a different background and everyone has a different way we look at things. And we'll, we'll put up a dish. We'll all talk about it. We'll all give some input. Does this need more this, more that, more that? And, but I mean, it's not a complete democracy, but I certainly like to take input into to how something's going to end up. From the inspirations drawn from local ingredients, we now turn to Chef Chris Coleman in Charlotte, North Carolina, who highlights the adaptability of this menu to micro-seasons. It's a dance with nature, adjusting the kitchen's rhythm to the subtle changes of what the local farms offer. This approach ensures that dinners always experience the peak flavor of the season. The, the founding principles of Goodyear House, of our menu, was simple food with complex flavors. And, you know, we always kind of asked ourselves the question, what would, what would Mama or what would mom have made to put on the dinner table had they gone to culinary school? You know, had they been classically trained? How would that influence their cooking? And, you know, we have, we have since kind of developed a style at Goodyear that is, is Southern, but it's also progressive. It's also, it, it, it really kind of embraces a lot of these cultures that we've been speaking of. And each menu, we, we change the menu every four to six weeks, depending on kind of the micro seasons of, of what the farms around us are growing. Each iteration has a, a kind of a theme to it. And it's not something that we set out to say like, okay, we're going to do updated versions of classic French cuisine. But we kind of start to ideate menus and and there always seems to be kind of a, a line you can pull all the way through the menu items and say like okay this is a very french menu or this is a, a very northern african menu this is a very northern mexican menu and i think it's just it's kind of fun for us to explore the different cuisines and cultures so it's again it's got a southern backbone but it's not really a southern restaurant 
Chef Coleman's emphasis on seasonal menus leads us to Chef Andy Dubrava, who takes us behind the scenes of the relationship between chefs and local farmers. It's a partnership that goes beyond business. It's about supporting and uplifting each other. Let's delve into how Chef Dubrava and his team play a role in its vital culinary ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's not a, you know, a secret that money rules everything. And I just, it's important to us to help in any way that we can. At our restaurant, you can eat dinner on a Tuesday night. And then the next day I walk down the street and buy all of those products at the farmer's market. So we're just trying to help the farmers. You know, we like to be as transparent as possible and uh, not trying to be uh showy, but really just want people to know that we're using the best quality local stuff that we can possibly get. Building on this idea of culinary ecosystem, Chef Derek Wagner in Providence, Rhode Island, shares a powerful philosophy. For him, culinary excellence isn't just about creating amazing dishes. It's about respecting and supporting everyone's involved, from the staff to the producer and the diners. It's about creating a sustainable, ethical environment where everyone thrives. In terms of source, sourcing and procuring and developing you know, those, those relationships and bridges, it does take a lot of work personally to, you know, to, to get, that, get that ball rolling, if you will. But as you do that, and as I've done that, then you get to the place where you realize how important these connections are, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And and sources, and you want to be able to create them first, but then sustain and maintain them. And you understand that this is important for me. This has to be important. It has to be good for them too, right? So you again, you know, I'll constantly refer back to this as relationship, right? Relationship cuisine, relationship cooking, relationship hospitality. I don't want to be good at the expense of anyone else. I don't want our food to be amazing on the backs of either treating the staff or the producers, the farmers or the customers and get, I don't even call them customers. I call them guests, you know, the guests, by taking advantage of any one thing, because to me, it goes back to that ecosystem, right? And that's not just applicable to nature in, you know, in the sense, in the traditional sense of trees and farming and ecology, that's applicable to everything. Our ecosystem of, you know, of our restaurant here, of our community at large, of our industry community, you know, zoomed out. In a, in a more macro way, you know, nationally, internationally, it's just a hospitality field in general, right? You can, you can apply it, you can zoom in or zoom out however you like, but it starts down here on the micro level, you know, and, and the fact that the ecosystem has to be healthy for us to, if we want to live off of it, right? If we want to, if we want it to inspire us, if we want it to be healthy and if we want it to be beautiful and bountiful, then we have to participate in its wellness and in its health. From ethical practices to the power of the humble ingredients, Chef Kelly Whitaker in Denver reminds us that even the simplest produce like carrots can have a profound impact. It's about recognizing the potential in every element of the kitchen, understanding 
how each choice we make, no matter how small, can contribute to a larger change. When I moved back to Colorado, you know, I was just looking around and we have this like really beautiful farmer's market. And, you know, I started like, I'm an activist, probably as much as I'm a chef or anything, I'm probably maybe even more of an activist sometimes. I kept saying, I left LA and I actually even staged a day with David Kincham and Raisa and I had this carrot. And even after cooking in LA, I was like, this is extraordinary. Like, it's so good. Their farms are so good. And I was like, man, this is so impactful. And I talk about coming back here and like I say all the time, like if carrots change, could change the food system, change the soil and they do. But, you know, I'd probably be selling and growing carrots right now. Grain is one of the things that's an unlock, we view as an unlock for farms. So when we approached our first farmer, they were growing a cover crop. Their main crop is heirloom potatoes and it's a 600 acre organic farm. And I asked them to take out the cover crop, which is called rime and rye, which we actually actually mill as well. But we took out the rye and I sourced seeds and I brought them, you know, four or five different types of seeds and we grew that in rotation. And so we looked at it as like, not only is it great for the soil and regenerates the soil where it starts, it's also giving a farmer that might sell the cover crop for feed at a very low price, but it also like this is a big value add in terms of price for the farmer. And then the flavor, that's, you know, for me, that's again, that was in, that's where I was living in the space of because, you know, I was doing things and I, I always bought and supported organic flour. And I love a lot of mills in the United States. And, but, you know, to have something, you know, fresh milled in the back of the restaurant or, you know, in this case now I had another space, it just changed our menu. And I felt like, you know, so there's change along the way, the entire way. And so when we say it's our medium for change, it's a big impact crop. You're not growing it on, you know, you can grow, we grow unique varieties on an acre, but the idea is that this is a scalable thing that can have a lot of good for a planet and people and flavor. And to wrap up this segment, Chef Jose Mandin in Miami brings us back to the essence of cooking with passion and purpose. For him, every dish must be a bold, memorable, a culinary statement that leaves a lasting impression. It's this drive for excellence that makes every meal an experience to remember. Every time I do something, it has to be bold. It has to be memorable. I don't like cooking just just to do it. You know, I want everybody to, when they eat their food to remember what they ate from me. You know, like any, any dish that I cook has to be. So in Puerto Rican food, it's, it's a lot of both flavors. So I incorporate some of that when I'm cooking that kind of cuisine. Now I have put some of this in my, in my dishes sometimes, you know, when I'm creating, when I'm cooking other, other cuisines. As we conclude our exploration of local and seasonal ingredients and the incredible impact they have on menu creation, we move towards the final thoughts from our chefs. In this final segment, we'll touch upon the personal philosophy, challenges and aspiration that drive these culinary leaders. It's about the deeper lessons learned in the kitchen and beyond. Our first perspective comes from Chef Brad Kilgore in Miami, who share his realizations about competitive nature of the culinary world and the importance of carving out one's own path. You got to do it yourself. No one's going to do it for you. And even you can still be a, a leader and you can still bring people up with you. But, you know, it's a tough world out there. And, and there's some people that want you to exceed and 
I want my team to succeed. But there's also other people that just want you to get in line and and follow their path. And I didn't realize that at a young age. I thought everyone was out to help each other. You know, maybe I was a little naive. Chef Kilgore's insights about the industry lead us to Chef Mani Chuan's thoughts on the creative process. I asked her an interesting question. Does it become easier with time? Her answer reminds us that a certain level of challenge is necessary to stay passionate and to continue delivering your best. I don't think it gets easier. And I think in a way, I don't want it to get easier. Because okay. if it gets easier, then you become passive. And if you become passive, then you do not give your best, right? Uh, so I do not want it to get easier. I want to push myself to the limit every time and my team, because that's when we, when we create the best. Echoing the sentiment of continuous learning, Chef Joe Sasto shares his relentless pursuit of knowledge and personal growth. For him, the journey of a chef is a never-ending apprenticeship, a path of constant evolution and improvement. I want to be better every single day than the day before. Something like I heard a story very early on in my career when I was working, I was working for Michael Mina. I was in one of his restaurants. And this was probably, this was the first real kitchen that I had worked in, a like real restaurant, real cooking. We weren't like taking shortcuts or, you know, buying pre-made things. And it was during our, our daily meeting with a chef that I had, was working for at the time, was running the restaurant, uh, a chef named Jason Berthold. He was Corey, he was Thomas Keller's right-hand man, opening per se. He worked closely with Corey Lee, came from the French Laundry School of Cooking. And he was telling a story of something Thomas, Chef Keller, had said to everyone about how, they, how he decided how to hire people. Because obviously, especially at that time back, mid-2000s, 2010, 2005, like when French Laundry was really the place to be. They had tons and tons of interns and stages and externs and cooks and chefs coming there trying to get a job. And one of the questions Chef Thomas would ask everyone would be like, oh, what are you passionate about? And obviously everyone would say cooking, like, oh, I just want to cook. I'll be the best cook. I want like I'm passionate about cooking. And he didn't care about that. What he wanted people to hear and the people that immediately got the job were the ones that said, I want to be better every day. Because that passion for wanting to be better and wanting to improve is not something you can teach someone. You can teach anyone how to cook. You can teach anyone how to cut an onion. You can teach anyone how to make a sauce. You can't teach someone that inner desire to be better. And so whether that's using one less towel the next day than you did the shift before, whether that's being set up two minutes earlier for service than you were the day before. And so it's that drive to just be the better version of yourself every single day to evolve, to progress. And that's something that like that story has stuck with me through my entire career. And I kind of try to bring that into every part of my life in and out of the kitchen is just, I want to be better every day than the what than I was the time before. Every opportunity, everything that I do, every time I shoot a video or that I'm creating something or I'm cooking or working out at the gym, I just want to be better than I was the day before. And I feel like that's the drive you need in any business, in any, any career that you're taking. If you have that passion just to be better than you were the day before, it's something like you're going to be successful. From the pursuit of knowledge, we move to Chef Leah Gaccione's from Morristown, New Jersey. 
she gives her perspective on staying true to her oneself. In an industry as demanding as the culinary world, maintaining one's identity and self-worth can be a challenge, especially as a woman. Chef Gaccione shares her insights on the importance of self-belief and authenticity in a chef's journey. I think the important thing is to stay true to yourself. It's hard, I think, in general, but I think more so maybe as a woman in this industry to feel like you are enough. I think imposter syndrome is a real thing. And when you're surrounded by that many talented people, you kind of have a little bit of self-doubt. But I think it's really important just to stay true to yourself and represent yourself the best way possible. Returning to Chef Brad Kilgore, he shares a powerful metaphor about the culinary profession that I'm always using when I'm engaging with other chefs. He emphasizes the hard work and emotional investment that goes into a chef's career. Things never happen the way you plan them in life. And I think anyone that reflects on their life probably realizes that be resilient, be fair, and try to take care of the people around you. You know, I think that for me is internally fulfilling is to really actually believe in and trying to bring up people that really want it and want to be something. Most people in the industry, they would have, if they were going to be a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, traditional jobs, work in an office, they would have done that. We, we don't really fit in that mold mm-hmm, for the most mm-hmm. part. That's mm-hmm. why we fit in this world. And so it's, it's a blue collar job with white collar opportunities. And what does it mean? Well, it's a hard working job. You're going to sweat. Yep. You're going to get, you're going to bleed. You're going to cry. You're going to work crazy hours. But now, like it used to be for years and years with chefs, is that you worked at one restaurant, you're the chef, somebody else owned it. And, and you were just kind of stuck. And that's why a lot of chefs go through alcohol issues and drug issues and depression. And luckily, we're not f- stuck in that vortex any longer. The job hasn't changed. <laughs> when you walk in the door and you cut up vegetables and meat and you heat it up and you put it onto a plate, that part hasn't changed. But the opportunities have. And, and a lot of people haven't, they don't know that or they don't know how to get it or they don't know how to ask for it. And, and I, how do you really you know balance those opportunities because i'm sure that there's a lot of opportunities that could be thrown you know at chefs and so on but they are not all like good opportunities don't believe everything you see and and read if your agreements read your contracts don't make somebody read it for you and then ask a lot of questions don't sign your life away you only get one You only get one brain. Don't give it away. There's people out there that want to support and want to grow and want to be great, you know, partners, investors, you know, developers, whatever it may be. But, but just make sure that you're doing, being diligent and, and thorough. But as far as like creating opportunities, it goes with anything. You're never going to get it if you don't ask for it. And you got to, You know, some people don't necessarily believe in the word and it doesn't need to be magical or spiritual, but you do need to manifest because if you want to be a restaurateur or you want to be the owner of your own restaurant, 
it's not going to happen during dinner service on the hotline. You know, you got to, you got to get out of your bubble or your circle and knock on doors and let people know that's what your goals are. And if you're performing and people know that you're performing at a high level or interesting level or, or, you know, that people love, then that's the next step into, you know, kind of getting your dream. And we cannot finish this recording without talking about the influence of immigration on the food in America. So Chef Sheldon Simeon finally reminds us that food in America is influenced by immigrants. He highlights the rich tapestry of cultures in places like Hawaii, where diverse foodways tell stories of history, migration, and shared experiences. It is. It's, it's my favorite thing to to learn and is watching foodways, pathways, not necessarily only in Hawaii. I had a blast doing research when I was for the for the book, but like just seeing how how things are influenced, like how Japan got their tempura and then like how the spice trades uh, and how noodles went throughout Asia and uh, all of that stuff. I love it. It was amazing to put a magnifying glass of, of under Hawaii and showcase our cuisine and speak about it through the book of, of all these different cultures, like my grandparents and it, sh- it share so many similarities to places like that, like how yeah. Japan. So your grandparents came from the Philippines, correct? Yeah, they came from uh, Ilocos, which is the northern region of the Philippines, where many, many, uh, majority of the, the Filipinos that came to work on the plantations come from the north uh, side. Just be- I, at this point, I'm third generation practically in, in Hawaii, so... You know, I don't speak the language very, very little. I don't speak Ilocano. So, you know, my way of, of celebrating my Filipino culture is, is through the food. And which is also unique too, you know, like I've been on Top Chef and they taught me as, as, as a Filipino chef, right? Too. And then I've, I've done so many different things with Filipino food, but my lens of Filipino food is very narrow. Uh, it is through Hawaii. It's, it's, it's strained to the, through the sieve of Hawaii. And it's probably so. almost like a, a still picture in time, correct? Because Filipino food, I, I evolved and like, you know, Portuguese food, I evolved and, you know, and Japanese and so on. But this is all those people that came, you yeah. know, what at the first parts of the 20th century, you know, the end of the 19th century. And, you know, all of this mixed together with local ingredients obviously created something really different and special. I love it. I love there's like two parts of like Hawaii when you look at the cuisine that, that came from, from that era of the, the migration, immigration. So like a lot of celebrations that we do is still based in like the old times and a lot of recipes of how they've done. So here we are hundred years later. A lot of things has changed in, in where that those celebrations come from. So we're, it's almost a time capsule, but it's kind of like, tweaked a little just because they had to go off of memory. So it kind of, kind of changed. And to conclude our series of profound thoughts, Will Guidara, the ex co-owner of Eleven Madison Park and author of the fantastic book, Unreasonable Hospitality, speaks about the impact of generosity in the culinary industry. He believes that investing in people, be it your team or your guests, holds more value than traditional marketing. It's a reminder that at the heart of hospitality lies the spirit 
of giving and connecting. Right, like I could easily argue that any dollar spent on generosity to the people you work with or the people you serve has much more impact than any dollar spent on traditional marketing. You have a bunch of, you have an army of people out there telling these stories that will sway people's opinion much more than any Instagram ad or whatever, right? Because people are speaking from the heart when they tell these stories. But I think it's bigger than that. You're right. There's many, many businesses that believe in this idea of what gets measured gets managed. If you Mm -hmm. can't clearly measure the return on an investment, then you don't make it, which in my view is short-sighted. I don't care what you, what you sell, whatever the product you sell, someone else could come around who's smarter, more creative, has more money, whatever it is, and build a better product. Everyone's always talking about like how to create the best moat you can around your business, right? But okay. So like Apple has a pretty good moat, right? It's going to be hard for someone to compete with Apple. Most businesses through their product alone are going to have a challenging time creating a moat of any significance that, that disallows someone else from coming in and stealing their business. I believe the best moat that any business can create is through investing in relationship capital Uh to build those accounts. Because while someone can come and build a better product reasonably quickly, relationships take a long time to build. And if you invest in them in the right way and you engender the right amount of loyalty, they also take a long time to erode. As I played up today's episode, let's take a moment to savour the rich stories I've shared From heritage to technique, from passion to simplicity, it's been a smorgasbord of experiences. To all the chefs who have amazed our taste buds, and to you, the listeners of the podcast Flavors Unknown, who have been my companion on this flavor journey, thank you. Here's to the next 150 episodes, to the next 100,000 downloads, and to countless more conversations behind the kitchen door. And until then, keep in mind that the people who likes to eat are always the best people.